welcome to this episode of the Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Kamal Ahmed. Ytree was founded in 2017 to give their clients insights and advice about their money and life. Ytree calls this insight financial life intelligence. At the heart of this idea of financial life intelligence sits the vision of a world where wealth is defined by how you live, not what you have. That's where the Futureverse comes in. A space to explore the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. Today, we're returning to our current theme in the Futureverse, redefining legacy. Last week's debate focused on the question of whether individuals are morally obligated to give much or all of their wealth away. This week, we turn to the how. So, you've decided you want to make a charitable donation, for example, but what is the most effective way to do so? I'm joined now by two expert guests to discuss this topic. Anna Joss is the founder and CEO of Prism The Gift Fund, a charity which administers the giving of individuals, corporates, foundations and groups of donors making significant gifts to charities all over the world. She set up Prism in 2005 with the aim of getting more money into the charitable sector, and she's certainly done that. Prism's donation income last year was £115 million, £60 million of which was donated around the world. David Duke is the founder of Street Soccer Scotland, a non-profit social enterprise that uses football to help create positive change in the lives of socially disadvantaged adults and young people. In 2001, David became homeless following the death of his father until a chance sighting of an advertisement to join a football team provided the momentum to turn his life around. He was named the Sunday Times Changemaker of the Year in 2016 and was awarded an MBE in 2018. David and Anna, thank you both so much for joining me today and hello. Now, we brought you together for this conversation about giving because of your differing and frankly complementary experiences in the charity uh, sector. Anna, First off, through your work as a founder of Prison, you have advised countless high net worth individuals and been the facilitator of charitable donations around the world across multiple uh, sectors. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about Prism, uh, the gift fund. I just wondered, 2005, how, why did you start and had you done lots of research before that, that moment when you opened the doors? Yes. So in the 90s, I. Um, set up and ran the British arm of an American-Israeli charity, Strengthening Democracy in Israel. And I learned a lot from the Americans. And in America, donor-advised funds was a very common method of giving. In fact, today, there's $175 billion of assets in donor-advised funds in America compared to $1.65 billion sterling in the UK. So I saw those structures. Um, and I learned a lot altogether about fundraising from the Americans and did about a year and a half's worth of research um, and decided, apart from a very large government bureaucratic machine, there was nothing targeting the mid upper end of the market efficiently, effectively, swiftly, and set up Prison the Gift Fund. That's fantastic, Anna. Thank you for uh, telling us a bit about your history as well before 
launching PRISM itself. Before we get on to some of those interesting points about the difference between the US and the UK, which is really substantial, as you've just outlined, David, so, David, coming to you, tell us about the story behind your charity. Yeah, well, as kind of mentioned earlier, Kamal, you know, I experienced homelessness as a, as a young person and football was the kind of rope that pulled me out of a dark hole, you know, being part of a team, you know, finding some purpose and some structure and, and a support network, um, which led to a few years later deciding, you know, having worked in the charity, so kind of moved out of homelessness, trained as a kind of community worker, worked with various kind of homeless agencies and services and continued my own football coaching journey. I just kind of decided in 2009 that we would create street soccer to allow people the same opportunity which I had, which was to be, again, part of a team. You know, we work with a lot of people who are isolated and, and cut off from society due to things like homelessness and mental health, addiction and so on. Um, and, you know, in order to kind of create change, people need to connect, you know, and people need to be part of something. So the football allows people that kind of sense of belonging, that purpose, that reason to wake up in the morning. And then once they're involved, relationships are built, trust is built between the coaches and support staff and the players. And then we start to integrate education and training and, and opportunities for people to move forward, largely done in partnership with a range of other charities who are all, you know, trying to achieve similar goals so we can bring it all together for the, for the greater good. And David, it started and is Street Soccer Scotland, but it's not just based geographically in Scotland any longer. You know, we have Street Soccer London, um, which was set up just at the beginning of the pandemic, actually, about a, a month, great timing as always, but uh, about a month before the pandemic, we got some funding to kind of, to kind of start. We've always planned to kind of, kind of create going to move street soccer across the UK and an opportunity came up in London and, and it's somewhere that we were, we knew a lot of people on the ground there. So we decided to kind of replicate some of the stuff that we're doing here, albeit understanding the, the cultural differences and the, the community differences between, you know, Glasgow and London and Glasgow and Edinburgh. We, we took that same approach to set up a, a programme, a lot of it, you know, focusing on young people who are at risk of getting involved in gangs and, uh, violence, but also, you know, working with adults experiencing homelessness and uh, mental health. And we're doing a lot of work just now with um, refugees. And David, bring alive some of the people that you've met and uh, supported on, on their journeys uh, for the people who are listening and, and watching in to us today. We, we meet so many inspiring people every day, you know, and just seeing that the courage and the strength and, you know, that kind of resilience that people have shown just to kind of remain, you know, to be here and, and to kind of get involved. Because, you know, I think sometimes people see homelessness or addiction or, you know, various things out there as, you know, it's like their, their own fault, you know, and it's like there's not a lot of kind of empathy, you know, with, with, with people because they see them at their worst day, but what people sometimes don't see is, you know, the journey that they've been on. You know, the fact that often people say, oh, everyone deserves a second chance. But actually, if you look at the journey of some of our players, you know, coming through care systems and, you know, having no support whatsoever, you know, it's almost like a first chance they're getting because actually they had no chance of, of 
kind of living a kind of normal life based on their circumstances. But just in terms of, you know, we're speaking about London there. So one of one of our new staff members in London, uh, Frankie, is uh, came through one of our refugee projects. So you know, he, you know, was captured uh, in Sudan, managed to escape the militants, made his way across the the border into Libya, and then over to Italy by boat. Um, you know, very dangerous situation even in the, the refugee camps in Italy. And, you know, he, you know, is, he was at risk every day just trying to be fed and managed to escape there and, and threw down into the, the, the jungle in, in Cali. Um, and then by boat arrived into, into the UK, you know, at every stage, young guy, you know, talented young man, but just because of cultural differences and, you know, things we don't even know about in, in, in today's press. You know, he's had to escape, and he's came to he came to the the UK. He arrived in London, and he always knew that if he, he could, he always, well, what he said was if he, he knew if he found football, then he would find a community. And then he arrived at street soccer, um, got involved, captained our kind of England kind of homeless World Cup team, um, and then came back and then started helping get other refugees along and getting them support. So he became a mentor. I mean, a kind of volunteer, and he, he just recently got status, so he's now allowed to work here in the UK. So he's now setting up new projects for street soccer and, and using his own lived experience to kind of support others. You know, and he's, he's a remarkable young young man, and uh, and we're very honoured to have him on our team. It's that kind of amazing story, isn't it, Anna? That that shows what can be done with the the right approach to funding and, and support. Um, you gave us that incredibly stark figure about um, uh, funding via legacy, etc. of uh, charities in the UK compared with the levels of funding that could be available or are available to charitable sectors in the US. What's the issue here, Anna, for the UK? Many would say what you've revealed is, frankly, not enough money goes into the charitable sector. Well, there are a number of issues going on. Firstly, um, tax. So in America, it's a much simpler charitable tax break compared to the UK. I mean, the UK have good tax breaks, but they're complex. There's almost £750 million every year unclaimed in gift aid. Higher rate taxpayers often don't do it. Smaller charities don't have the ability to claim. So we've got tax going on. And then there's a sort of psychology. When you go to an American university, you're pretty much tapped for money. By the time you're a graduate, um, you're an alumni. So it took my university of, oh, 20 to 30 years to contact me to ask for uh, some kind of donation. So we're not proactive. We're not as open. And very sadly, I'm afraid, and I speak to lots of fundraisers in the charitable sector, they're not very good at major donor fundraising. And if you look at the budgets of some of the very large charities raising 300 million, 500 million, about 8% is from major donors. Now, when the government um, was, 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 significantly funding through grants, okay. They were good at government grants, good at direct mail, but now we need to rely on major donors much more significantly. 
Um, so there's a question of educating major donors how to fundraise, educating donors on the tax breaks, um, and really encouraging people to ask for money. Prison the Gift Fund created a white paper just before COVID and Nat sent it a survey. And one of the startling results was everyone loved donations and hated donors. So that's another psychology going on here in the United Kingdom. David, do you find that there's a sort of British embarrassment about fundraising and almost, and I think this is widely really exploring, almost this idea that somehow, as you say, Anna, the fundraising bit is sort of somehow unpleasant and not to be spoken about. I mean, in my experience, you know, I think I totally agree, Anna. I think, you know, the kind of major gift donors and stuff like that is in like major donors, it's really hard for, for me as a charity founder, you know, a lot of our income is kind of traditionally, you know, grants and trusts, you know, your kind of lottery funds and stuff like that. And quite a lot of our kind of smaller scale fundraising around gala dinner events and, you know, traditional or maybe corporate sponsorship because we've got a sports element. We, we kind of find a nice balance between kind of CSR and brand awareness because we're quite visible. We've got, you know, 70 odd projects scattered across Scotland, for example. But I think it's, it's my experience of working with, you know, major donors is, you know, it's about building a relationship, you know, so it's, I've always just kind of, I'm terrible at asking Anna. That's like, and I think it's because I'm the founder. I feel like I'm asking for myself because I'm the founder. No, but that's, that's the thing, David. Often a donor will say, they never asked me. You're not asking for you you're asking for your brilliant charity yeah and that's i mean now we've now got a head of fundraising in place and heather's very good at the ask so i you know so i kind of ask like the team to kind of work on that side of it and, and my job is maybe just to kind of influence and, and just storytell you know kind of share a vision but i think you know it's it's also about how you get to people as well because a lot of you know those kind of levels that people operate in and it's about having your network. Well, I'm very fortunate. I mean, in Scotland, for example, I've got great relationships with some of the major donors here and some of the kind of leading entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And um, and that's a relationship which is kind of just built on trust and and building a relationship to the point where sometimes they come to us and say, look, we'd like to support. We've seen what you do. We'd like to help you to scale that because also you know sometimes major donors because you know a lot of their wealth has been created from an entrepreneurial in the background they kind of then take that into their philanthropy and see how they can you know invest in a, a part of your organization which allows it to unlock xyz um but some of the information that you'd said there and it resonated straight away and i, I totally get that and i can see why having an organisation like yourself involved taking the support charities like us taking to get to that level and, and to actually understand it as well. I mean, you, you mentioned gift aid as well. You know, we, we, we're a lot bigger than we were five years ago, but for the first probably nine years of the charity, we never claimed gift aid because we never had the the insight or the infrastructure to do so. But, but now that we've got a, 
a fundraising department and you know things set up we are now able to so for example we had a gala event recently where there was a lot there's a few kind of major donors who gifted on the night and we were able to claim gifted on top of that so you know you know a fifty thousand pound donation then becomes you know a 62 or whatever the number is you know it's 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 money it's sitting there and you said there's 750 million of it unclaimed and, and that when we have to unlock it because you know I, I'm, I'm working in a sector just now we, we do get government income as well um and you know things like and particularly in scotland where you get the public uh, paid a uh, public service paid of you you know so so they're they're having to find a massive hole of a couple hundred million but where does that sit you know where do they take that for and largely it comes back down to the third sector and the charity sector because there's less money there so and you know arguably you know our guys are probably some of the most hard-working and underpaid staff as well so we're having to be really creative in terms of how we how we do that and i was even on monday i was at a Scottish government event, we can all the local authorities and stuff like that, and they're talking about how well, how can we tackle child poverty if we're not getting any increase in budget? You know, and one of the questions which was asked is, well, where where does the, the private sector sit in this? You know, where does business and, and corporate play their part in 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 kind of impacting on the community? Yeah, no, look, it's it's you need to educate society to have a responsibility to give. And everyone has a responsibility to give, um, but some can give more. Now, that, in my view, that needs to begin at primary school in terms of education. And that also needs to, to change so that people don't just think whatever they regard as the very rich are responsible. No, we're all responsible. Um, um, and then, you know, how do you encourage people to begin that journey? Um, by visiting projects like yourself as well. You know, sometimes each of our donors, it's a very, very different story. Very little aligns them, what's motivated them in the first place. And it could be health, it could be personal, but often it's seeing something. And what I always say also to a donor is you will always gain more than you give. So um, it will it will open your life. It will make it so much more interesting um, by engaging with whatever project it is. Um, but it's a journey. And I also say to fundraisers, um, they say, well, you know, how do I do it? You know, can you almost like, can I wave a magic wand and the money will come falling down? Well, I'm sure as you know, David, it's hard growth and it takes many years to build those networks and relationships and persuasion. You know, Anna said it's about people and it's about those relationships because actually for me, it's not about, it's almost like sharing a vision of better in terms of, look, this is what our organisation's doing. This is how it's helped change people's lives this is how it helps the community and it's about getting the donor to to buy into that you know that vision for better Anna let's go through the practicalities and how PRISM helps people uh, on this journey you've touched briefly on the tax system take us through that bit sp specifically 
first. As you say, in the UK, it is more complicated than, for example, in the US, but not impossible. What are the key uh, things that high net worth individuals, people who have access to wealth and want to do make a difference to the society they live in? How can they approach the tax issue specifically? Well, first of all, there is a gift aid application to cash, a gift of cash. Um, and of course, as a higher rate taxpayer, not only does a charity claim 25%, but in their tax return, a higher rate taxpayer may be eligible to also claim 25% on the gross donation. Now, if they don't have a record of it, if they don't have receipts, it doesn't happen. So I get people saying that they're sort of not aware of it. I mean, you'd think they would be really sophisticated people who are philanthropic. And then they get an order with their accountant. Why hasn't my accountant told me about this? And you talk to the accountant and the accountant says, well, it's all very personal and a bit embarrassing. And if they've not given me any receipt, I don't think they've made any donations. Hence the beauty of a donorized fund like PRISM, because at the point of getting to PRISM, we give them one receipt, whether it's cash or shares or property, one summary receipt per their accountant. So that's, that's gift aid and cash. And then there are really amazing tax breaks around a gift of shares and property where you get full income tax relief and pay no capital gains tax. Now, it's, they're very powerful, actually. Um, there are also tax breaks around cash offshore for a resident non-DOM who still earns income here, which I won't go into, but it's also very powerful. Legacies. The government in 2012 introduced something called Legacy 10. If you give 10% or more of your state to a charity, the balance is taxed at 36 instead of 40%. So not only are donors and individuals not aware of all of this, nor are their private client advisors, but nor are the charities. How many charities put on their brochures, marketing material, please gift aid, sign here? But they don't say, Oh, and you may also be eligible to claim a further 25% on this donation and explain to them the other half of the equation. That's why there's almost 750 million unclaimed. So tax, very, very, you know, it is a motivation. It is an incentive. And by the way, again, I'm trying to remember which year it was where the government put a ceiling on gift aid to something like 50,000. Then there was a total uproar. All the news um, got misunderstood at all. Basically, said, "Well, you know, all these wealthy people—it's it's either tax evasion or, or you know, they're just getting a tax break and they shouldn't." The reality is, when you give ten thousand pounds to a charity, you're giving ten thousand pounds to a charity. You could you could go and on holiday, you know, buy a car with it, but you've chosen to give it away, and yes there is a tax incentive on top. So total misunderstanding around all of that. What the beauty of a donor advised fund, it's, a, it's an enabler. It's trying to, to simplify giving, encourage giving, and take away the worry, the burdensome, the compliance, the governance, and educate in the background. Unfortunately, we have a charity commission today that is um, 
well, quite frankly, I'm not sure it's fit for purpose. I mean, obviously it doesn't have enough funding itself, but actually it doesn't offer guidance. So what it's, it's terrified the charitable sector. It's terrified itself around safeguarding issues, and there have been some bad safeguarding issues in the sector. But actually, people are so fearful to be a trustee. So it's very hard for charities or projects to set up. It takes a commission sometimes 12 to 15 months to give someone charitable status. It then takes the banking system another year to create a bank account. So there are so many obstacles as well um, that, 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 that one needs to navigate in, in wanting to create a charity or, 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 or wanting to give to a charity or assessing a charity. Um, and that, you know, I, I can talk further about, about why vehicles and strategists are essential in the sector today to just assist all of this. That's, you've touched on tax, donor advice fund that PRISM operates. Can you map in the collective fund as well? Is that, is that a different part of your uh, model? How does the collective fund uh, approach, support, um, uh, donation? Thank you. It, um, that's a really helpful question. The history behind that is in 2015, um, we were referred, one of the banks referred a tragedy where someone's baby had been killed and they quickly needed to raise money from friends and family. Um, they didn't, they were in no state to create their own operational UK charity. And so we were able to allow people to raise money tax effectively under prison. And then the World Food Programme knocked on our door in July 2015 and said, we're owned by the UN in Rome. We're not a UK entity, but we need a vehicle to tax effectively raise money in time for the world rugby in October 2015. ITV was sponsoring it. Government were matching it pound for pound. And so prison became that vehicle. And then the refugee crisis in Europe broke in 2015. And lots of groups had started in Just Giving, which, you know, is a very useful platform. But Just Giving said, we don't really send £150,000 to Calais and do that due diligence. And they found their way to prison. And what we've learned over that period is what we can do, what is a very robust application process for a collective fund to come into prison. So you may have heard of Choose Love, Help Refugees, the biggest refugee group in Europe. They have a shop in Soho in London, a shop in Soho, Manhattan, and they operate under prison. They are not their own charity. So they do all the work, the fundraising, um, decide who they gift to, which partners they have. Um, they res could respond very quickly to Ukraine. But we are their vehicle to allow funds to be collected tax effectively. We do the overarching due diligence compliance governance on everything going out. Um, Sometimes it also is very swift and immediate in COVID, when COVID hit, because again, of the length of time it would take a group to create their own charity. We had, as an example, an amazing chef called Leon Arts who created Kitchens with Compassion, operated out of Wembley Stadium, out of the kitchens when Wembley was closed, and made, I believe, 625,000 meals 
the NHS and vulnerable in that first year operating under prison. So we'd get a, a, a phone call saying, we're delivering tons of tomatoes to your office in town. And I'd say, no, you're not. Del- you're delivering the tomatoes to Wembley and we'll pay the invoice. Um, so that enabled Leon to get going. He's since left us. We incubated him. He's teamed up with the Felix Project. So that's a good story. We can incubate. And sometimes, you know, people do leave because they have their own brand, their own operation. Um, the collective funds are very public, very open because they're fundraising. They have uh, their, their, their own websites. But we are the overarching um, compliance and governance and enabler. Um, so we'll help them navigate the rules and regulations of the Charity Commission and allow them just to get on with the joy of running their program and project. So you can you give advice, you give guidance, and also you, you have the emergency uh, response mechanisms for many important um, issues. David, uh, Anna touched on due, di- due diligence and the importance of knowing that charitable donations are effective. How do you look at that, David? How do you consider? I'm actually a trustee of of a charity, the Media Trust, and uh, it's something that we talk about a lot. Um, How do you ensure that the money you do receive, the donations you do receive, are used used effectively and you can report back? Yeah, well, you know, one of the key drivers of the the board that we have uh, in Scotland is, you know, the kind of due diligence and governance is, is, is critical, you know, and it's We've always tried to, you know, make sure that, you know, the balance of our central team and our programs team is fair. so that, you know, we know that the majority of investment goes directly on to kind of delivering the programs. Because actually what we've tried to do is uh, to keep kind of costs down, uh, is looking at saying, well, there's some organisations um, who might not be able to give you cash donations, but they can then look at pro bono support and stuff like that. So we've tried to, you know, looking at our travel, we've got a partnership with ScotRail, so our, all our staff can travel for free on trains and our players to events and stuff like that. You know, we get some pro bono legal advice, marketing and stuff like that, stuff that traditionally charities charities might have to pay for. We've managed to get that and kind of pro bono partnerships, which just kind of means that, you know, we know that, when investment comes in, we can kind of get the best kind of bang for our buck, as I would say. And in terms of reporting that, you know, we have a kind of strict kind of M&E system using Salesforce and using other kind of data collection to then put together reports that we can say, you know, in 2022, this is how many players we supported. This is the journey of the players. And here's some of the kind of stats to come out of that and how many players, you know, moved into employment or didn't go back to prison or improve their mental health and wellbeing. So we can start to show you, you know, here's here's what the where the investment went and in, in, in terms of and how that um what impact was created. So so donors can get, you know, regular updates in terms of using Salesforce exactly, you know, what's been done on the ground. And David, is there a preferred way for wealthy individuals to connect and, and give? I mean to be honest I, <laughs> I've always kind of left it up to them. You know, it's, it's it's their it's their investment. You know, we're we're always just kind of grateful for the support. But it's you know, everyone's different. Some 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 people just say right here, 
you know, I'd like to make a donation, you know, just put it into your, your core costs or whatever, or another donor may have an interest in, you know, a, a criminal justice, you know, and looking at saying, look, I really want to create a program which stops people from going back into prison. You know, so then we can start to tailor a particular project, which is already part of the offer, which is we we'll, we'll do that. Or it could be an area, you know, it could be someone's from a particular part of Scotland who's got a keen interest in, you know, say Edinburgh, for example. So they want that their donation to make an impact in Edinburgh. So then we need to say, okay, for £50,000, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set up a, you know, a women's only support project. And, and then we can then say, this is where the money's went. This is this is the impact of it. Uh, my, my, I mean, I, I don't have a favourite as such. You know, uh, you know, and, and as Anna knows, you know, it's, it's it's very tight out there. So you're always kind of having to manage things to make things work. But I think for me, it's always about it's important that we've got a relationship with with the with the family or the person who's doing that, so that we can, you know, bring them closer to it. Just so, because I think a lot of things is, everything's built on trust. You know, those relationships, they, they, they're investing in, in you as an organisation and you just want to have that strong relationship to say that this is what's happening. And then when you've got that relationship, as, as Anna knows, sometimes, you know, events play their part, you know, things like COVID and stuff that we just didn't, you know, see coming. So then you had to reach out to donors and Quinter saying, look, we're having to, do this emergency response, whether it be meals and or kind of technology to get out to players and support packages. So by having that relationship, you can actually say, you know, this is what we're proposing. Is that would that be okay for you? And in nine times out of ten, it's it's fine. I I often say to donors, um, you know, they want to assess charity. Um, and there are all sorts of different metrics metrics of, of doing that. There's something called the balance harvest scorecard. But what doesn't that what that's not taking into account is a personal journey or an emotional connection. And I often just say to the donor, if you just trust the charity, you know, yes, there is reporting and and an assessment, but it but in the end, if you trust that charity, they know best how to utilize the funds actually a lot of the time and I also um say to donors sometimes um you can't um apply the same I, I, it makes me very angry in the charitable sector they'll say administrative overheads need to be low because we want all our money to be used only for charitable purposes but you need to pay your CEO, you need to pay a fundraising director, you need to actually, why shouldn't you have proper paid and decent overheads? Because actually then you will have a better functioning charitable entity. So that's another, another And it's also quite, you need to be entrepreneurial. Yeah. And the thing is, so sometimes people think like charities, it's just like, is that kind of old fashioned? You know, it's just all volunteers who are given three hours of their time. You know, but actually, you know, to be a charity today, you need to be entrepreneurial. You need to, you know, be innovative in terms of 
because you know, policies are changing, governments are changing all the time, and we're in the middle trying to clean up the mess often. We need to be quite entrepreneurial and find the right skills. You know, like, you know, we were talking about giving away for me, one of my favourite types of giving is when people give me their time. So when I look, when I start to create the board of trustees and committees for street soccer, I'm trying to get the best skill sets that I can't afford. You know, whether it be general councils from banks and you know people in really high positions, get them in to be to help drive the strategic direction of the organisation. Because I always I've always did that because I can't afford to hire them, but I can get them on my on my board and get them working for me. You know, and I think you know sometimes you need to invest in the central cost to to actually get a you know a kind of a gain a couple of years down the line, whether it be investing in the fundraising teams and. You know, because if you don't do that, then you can't create change. But it's very aware of the time, uh, you two, which has been, this has been a superb, superb conversation. So thanks very much. So maybe we could just keep these final couple of questions just quite tight in terms of our answers. Um, a couple of, a couple for you, um, Anna. High net worth individual, family office approaches you. What are the first steps they take? And can you give us any examples of, those first steps for somebody who doesn't know this territory well, but knows they want to make a difference? It, it really varies on, um, it really varies on the background of the individual. Um, there are occasionally the ultimate underlying client of prison that I don't meet because they have so many advisors. They're, they're, they're sort of so in the billionaire category. Um, generally, we insist, I insist, I must meet the underlying donor who really, I need to understand the motivation and they need to understand prism and the mechanism. And that always helps. Um, sometimes they continue to give whilst they own tax and that it almost they're creating an endowment within their donor vice fund and topping up every year. Other people, it could be an IPO that's motivated them or an inheritance that's suddenly motivated them. And some have, a, again, a very clear idea. It could be health, education, children. Others have not a clue. They know they need to park the money and they need some help in beginning the journey. Now, we're not strategists and we'll refer them to a strategist in the market to help begin that process. Um, our contracts also stipulate that within three years of opening an account at PRISM, you need to make your first distribution out because we have £250 million pounds of assets, but we're not here to collect assets. We're here to get money out into the sector. So we do need to motivate them. Um, so it's also very important. We do a lot of lunch and learns with private banks, private law firms to give them the skills, the knowledge, and the language to understand philanthropy, to understand the benefits of a donor advised fund, and to really encourage the process and understand the mechanism. And also very importantly is, is, is back to the beginning of the conversation about, about the responsibility to give, to giving your lifetime. Now, I get questions around legacies a lot. I had one recently, someone said, um, he's 70, wife is younger, wants to give 100 million on death to six charities very quickly. 
So I said, I think we could call that control beyond the grave. Let's give them another 30 years. Who knows what state the charities will be in then? And if they are okay, can they absorb that kind of level of a donation in one go? Probably unlikely. We'd probably want proposals on grant agreements and possibly a distribution over three to five years with reporting in between. So why doesn't he start in his lifetime? And by death, he'll have a very good idea of what he wants to support. Um, so I don't always, you know, we don't always persuade everyone to do the right thing. Um, but it's, it's always an education on many levels. And Anna, before I come to you, David, to tell us a bit about the future of uh, street soccer, uh, of street soccer of Scotland, are things changing, Anna? The next generation of charitable givers, how are they changing the way they approach it, or will you still be struggling with these issues in 10, 20 years' time? Um, some of their objectives are different. So the beauty of a collective fund at PRISM, it often is a hybrid, sometimes with a donor-advised fund and with the next generation. So a family may have a foundation, or indeed um, there is no room for a trustee from a second, third, or fourth generation. So they create their own quasi-foundation under PRISM. It could be family and friends. They each put in money, and they may say, we care about racial justice, we care about the environment, or, or there is no clear objective within the main family foundation to tackle issues that we want to tackle, and we're going to do it on our own. And actually, through this mechanism, we can go out to the market, seek applications, we then administer a quasi-ball meeting, we educate them in the process, and the whole objective can be changed every year. So it's a very flexible Again, we entrepreneurial approach to giving. And, and the other thing is that if they're really not involved at all, it's again a mechanism to try and motivate them and make them think and take responsibility. So um, it's, it's just a much more open method, I think, of, of, of giving. David, let's leave continuing the positive tone of Anna's answer about the next generation of people who want to be involved rather than not at all involved. I love that phrase, Anna. Um, David, what next for street soccer Scotland? Just to carry on what we're doing, you know, and I mean, our, our strategy is always more players involved, more life changed, you know, and looking at really establishing ourselves more across London in terms of, you know, more more areas and more districts and more sessions across the kind of London programmes. We're coming to a time where, you know, there's a lot of cutbacks in governments and stuff like that and there's a lot things are becoming a lot tighter. So really strengthening our partnership model and working with alongside other charities rather than everyone to kind of try to do the same thing. Let's bring, you know, because someone's journey starts here. But actually there's probably a, a number of organisation who can play a part in that person's journey to a sustainable life. So strengthening the, the partnership model um, and then, yeah, just trying to you know, do the right thing and, and build new relationships. 
David Ju, MBE, and Anna Joss, uh, thank you so much for your time. What a fascinating conversation uh, that was, rich with advice uh, and prompts, and really an appeal to not be that group of people who are not at all involved. Let's remember that phrase uh, after this fantastic conversation. Thank you, Anna and David, so much for all your time. Uh, do join us again soon for another journey into the Futureverse. And in the meantime, for a different perspective on money and life, visit y-tree.com. 